All right, everyone, welcome to the first of our Physiology in Sports Nutrition webinars. Today, we're looking at endurance sports nutrition. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm going to be facilitating the webinar today, uh, but the webinar itself is presented by Greg and Tom, who I'll introduce in just a second. Uh, so just a couple of housekeeping things before we get into the presentation for today. Um, as I said, this is the first of our four live webinars in this series on physiology and sports nutrition. So today we're looking at endurance sports. The next one will be around strength sports. Uh, we've got one around team sports and then a final one around weight category sports as well. So I'd like to introduce our two presenters for today. So Associate Professor Greg Cox and also Dr. Uh, Dr. Tom Doring. So Greg, I'm sure, will be familiar to most of you in the membership. He's a fellow of Sports Dietitians Australia, uh, and he's currently an associate professor at Bond University on the Gold Coast. And he's worked with Olympic sports for many years, uh, enjoyed the challenge of aligning food and fluid intake to the demands of the sport while supporting athlete health and well-being. He's also been an endurance athlete himself throughout much of his life and, and spends as much time as possible these days either in the surf or driving his 1971 Volkswagen Combi. Our other presenter is Dr. Dom Doring, who's an ESSA accredited sports scientist and exercise physiologist who has over 10 years experience in the field of sport and exercise physiology. Tom is a lecturer at Central Queensland University and his research is focused on understanding age-related differences in both dietary intake and protein metabolism of triathletes, but also looking at substrate storage in endurance athletes and optimising performance and training adaptations in both endurance and team sport athletes as well. So before we get into this webinar, just a reminder, uh, hopefully you've had a chance to have a look at the pre-learning uh, for the physiology modules. So um, that's been up on the SDA Moodle page. Uh, and just a, a brief recap of what that covers, if you haven't had a chance to have a look at it yet, that goes into some of the basic principles of exercise training, energy systems, training zones and thresholds, uh, and their particular relevance to nutritional needs of athletes. It looks a bit at the measurement of substrate oxidation and how to interpret that data. Uh, it looks a little bit at the physiological responses and adaptations to exercise and nutrition. Uh, and then there was a couple of optional sections for those of you who may not have looked at it for a little while around substrate use and availability and also looking at hydration, thermoregulation and electrolyte balance as well. So this pre-learning module was really in there just for those of you who maybe haven't looked at physiology for a little while. Uh, to have a bit of a refresher. So we've got a bit of a base to build on for these various webinars. Um, but otherwise, you know, many of you who've uh, been through university recently or work a lot in this kind of area, um, it may, may be pretty much a, a matter of skimming through it and just saying, yeah, that's fine. I understand all those concepts already. Uh, in terms of the webinar itself, you are invited to post questions as you think of them. Um, just put those in the chat box using the Zoom chat function. Uh, and I'll facilitate questions to Greg and Tom either during or at the end of the session. Um, and we ask that you do post those questions in writing. So if we do run out of time at the end, we can then have any other questions that we don't get time to, to answer. Uh, we can hand those over to Tom and Greg and we can get some replies for those as well. So that's it for me. I'm going to hand over to Greg and Tom now and they're going to run us through this webinar presentation. So I'll hand over to you, Greg. Uh, thanks, Al. Uh, certainly, you did a great job with the pre-reading or pre-learning. I'd certainly encourage uh, all those people that are on today or listening to the web webinar in the future to um, jump onto Moodle and have a look through that. 
I'd also like to thank SDA for providing myself and Tom uh, the opportunity to speak today. Um, without any fear, I'm not moonlighting as a physiologist. Um, I'm certainly a sports dietitian at heart, and I guess I'm reflecting on today's physiology session with some of the things that I would regularly consider having worked with endurance athletes uh, for the last sort of 20 years. So Tom, he's the true physiologist in the duo uh, and really the brains behind the outfit. So he'll make sure that we stay on track throughout. To start the session, I will acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land on which we stand throughout various parts of Australia. And for me, that is the Kumbhmari clan of the Kibbeh language group. We pay our respect to elders past, present, and emerging for their wisdom, teaching and cultural knowledge. And I would like to also welcome any Indigenous people uh, on the webinar today. Before we start reflecting on the physiology, I think it's worth um, just considering the key elements uh, that you always need to keep at the forefront when dealing with endurance athletes. And this may be uh, similar to other athletes or sports, but I think the focus might um, be slightly different when you're managing endurance athletes. That first point there, maintaining health and well-being, along with optimising daily training performance and recovery, I think is particularly important when you're dealing with highly trained endurance athletes who undertake high daily training loads. And I guess the thing, one of the important points to take away from the session today is that the more trained an athlete becomes, the more work that they're able to do. And there'll be a recurrent theme on that right throughout. While optimising favourite adaptation through manipulating um, nutritional status of the, of the athlete might be important, it should never sort of take priority of maintaining health and wellbeing of an athlete. And for sometimes it can be really difficult uh, for an athlete to um, implement strategies that might be considered to be favourable for enhancing adaptation uh, while they maintain sufficient energy intake to meet the demands of daily training. And I guess athletes will respond favourably in response to endurance training if they undertake extended periods of work for long, uninterrupted periods of time. Optimising body composition and strategizing nutrition competition are also important considerations, but we won't focus on those today, but they'll, they'll certainly be um, covered in the Endurance Masterclass, which is scheduled for later in the year. Thanks, Greg. Uh, and also thanks, Alan. Thanks, Greg, for the intro. And thank you to SDA for having me along today. Um, just a little bit of an, an overview to set the scene of what we're going to be talking about today. Throughout today's webinar, Greg and I will swap backwards and forwards a, a fair bit. So to start, um, or to kind of frame this webinar, there'll be kind of three, three broad sections. So the first one's kind of understanding endurance training given the theme of today. So when we're looking at an overall plan, what are we looking at? Or when you sit down with a coach or an athlete and they're talking about these um, the micro cycles and meso cycles and phases of training, what are they talking about? So that might be um, a refresher for a lot of people. We'll then talk about, you know, more granular, so working down to the daily sessions or weekly and daily sessions. So 
know, within a session, what are some of the things that we're looking at? How do we classify intensity? And again, like Alan said, for some that have already looked at the pre-learning, might be a little bit of a refresher, but always good to touch on that and some of the little intricacies around that. We'll then talk about the physiology of exercise with a specific um, view on endurance exercise, and then talk more specifically around the determinants of substrate use for aerobic exercise. And then we'll finish up the last section with a few applied examples. So we'll talk about the importance of understanding relative and absolute um, energy or exercise intensity, sorry, and how we can use some of the information that you might have available to you to estimate energy expenditure. And Greg will finish up with a, a simulation, athlete nutrition simulation. So I guess it's important to classify what is endurance. Um, and I guess, you know, the best way to think about it is um, races that are characterised by extended periods of continuous work, although they're likely to be variable in speed uh, or intensity. And I guess they probably start at, you know, a 10-kilometre fun run right through to a marathon, half Ironman, or perhaps even an Ironman triathlon. And that's a little contentious, I guess, um, as ultra-endurance sports are typically classified as events longer than about four hours. But I think even within some of the endurance events, like a marathon, for instance, <laughs> that can be a high-intensity effort for someone that's well-trained, um, but it also can be an ultra-endurance event for someone that's less trained, aiming to finish within sort of five to six hours. And the reason I mention that is because the approach that you take um, is it's really important not only to reflect on the event, but also to reflect on the individual that you're working with and that's doing that event. Cool. So let's jump into kind of setting the scene of the endurance athlete and what you might be looking at um, when you sit down with a coach or an athlete. So this is kind of overview of, of what you might be looking at or how um, how phases of training or blocks of training are organised from the top level there, um, the most gross level through to the most granular level, the workout. So to start at the top, you'll often have, particularly with endurance athletes or, or especially Olympic athletes, a multi-year cycle or plan. So it might be two to four years long, particularly for Olympic athletes. Um, so that'll, that'll be a, a very large, um, not as much detail, obviously, but a bit of a plan about what the, what's going to happen over that you know, very long period of time. The next phase down is the macro cycle. And oftentimes this is you know, a very large training cycle. It's often an annual plan. So it might be 50, 52 weeks in, in duration. And within that, we'll often see phases of training talked about. So you might see terms like, um, general and specific preparation. You'll see pre-competition and competition phases kind of overlaid within that, um, within that yearly plan or macro cycle. Then the next level down would be mesocycle. So these are medium-sized training cycles or blocks, and they're typically multiple weeks long. So if I'm thinking about an amateur endurance athlete, you might have a mesocycle that's kind of aligned in, in months. So maybe that's a four-week block of training. For an amateur endurance athlete that's training part-time or um, you know, around work, et cetera, that often works well and they'll, they'll use like weekly blocks. And it might be four, so a three-week build and a, a week kind of recovery. 
So then you kind of meso cycles your blocks of training. The next level down is a micro cycle. Um, and this is often, again, from an amateur point of view, often a week long, um, multiple days or, or seven days typically. So that's your kind of weekly plan, what's going to happen from Monday to Sunday. But that's not, that doesn't have to be the case for more elite competitors. And then obviously the most granular uh, level there, we've got the workout. So, you know, within the day, um, what's going on? Are we training once or twice? It's the frequency of that, that um, day. And then down to the workout itself, how long is that? How intense is that? And we'll go into that in a little more detail in just a moment. Might be thinking, well, how does that connect in with nutrition? And this is, I guess, a reflection, sitting down with a coach and or understanding an athlete's longer-term goal really allows you to um, align nutritional strategies with the physical development of the athlete. That could be um, a long-term change in the body composition of the athlete. Uh, it could be through a period of growth uh, for the athlete as well. But understanding that longer-term plan allows you to sort of pick up on a theme, like with your nutrition, that regardless of the cycles or the smaller cycles that occur throughout that window, there's a consistent theme to the approach with that particular athlete. If you jump down to the annual plan or even you know, a mesocycle, that often allows you to um, class or I guess interpret or provides insight into some of the logistics that might sit around the planning for that athlete. So often at this stage, you know, the coach will have more specifically identified areas of travel. Uh, they might also have identified um, different exposures that the athlete may be um, exposed to. So they could be, you know, altitude camp, for instance. Um, they might be having a block of heat exposure leading into a, uh, an event that's likely to be undertaken in a hot environment. And those, I guess, that information you sort of, you know, allows you to think about well, what's the logistics, what are the skills that the athlete might need that sits around their nutrition in, a, in, in order for them to execute on the priority areas that you've identified. And stepping down that next sort of level into the week and or into the day um, and within the session it sort of allows you to pinpoint critical components uh, within the course of the week and also identify the key sessions for the week that might need additional nutritional support. So if you're looking at it from an annual perspective, and not all endurance plans are framed in this context, but I guess more generally, you know, you find that over the course of a year there'll be different flavors to the year so on the far left you've got base training and different characteristics that you know might be trained and then volume intensity the, the level of uh, fatigue or restoration the athlete might be in and then also some of the assessment that the athlete might be undertaking so in a base training phase which is normally you know in the early part of the the, the year uh, depending on when the major competitions are, you know, there'll be more focus on aerobic activities. There might be development of uh, muscular strength. 
typically the athlete's exposed to higher volumes of work but at lower intensities um, and they'll be, I guess, never fully recovered necessarily throughout that sort of phase. So this returning back to training, so there's a change in training from a rest period you know, through to an increasing load, really important to ensure that the athlete adjusts their intake, their fueling requirements as that load progressively in increases, and also to make sure you, know, you support health and wellbeing through that phase. When you jump through to pre-competition, the types of activities that they start to undertake become more specific to the demands of competition. And that there might be certain elements uh, within that uh, for that athlete they're trying to specifically develop. So it could be power, it could be strength endurance. Modif volume tends to be maintained throughout this window reasonably high and there's a slow increase in intensity. And that doesn't necessarily occur um, uh, just like an increasing sort of nature, it will be variable in terms of the intensity and Tom will demonstrate that in the next couple of slides. Um, and I guess through this period of time, it might be important to look at some of the specific outcomes that the coach is trying to achieve and make, make sure that you manipulate fueling strategies through to ensure that you're aligning your nutrition with the specific capabilities that the coach is trying to achieve in, uh, for that particular athlete. The competition uh, perform or phase of the year, often the types of activities the athletes asked to undertake is much more reflective of the demands of competition. Um, the intensity often increases through this phase of training um, and there's a slight reduction in the overall volume of work that's done in terms of duration. I guess the one thing that I reflect on in this sort of period of time is that the athlete is far more capable to do work quickly. So they have often have really high fueling requirements around training um, because, you know, if they've got through the base and pre-competition phase that's uninterrupted, uh, essentially their capacity to burn fuel has increased significantly. The other thing that... Um, is it often a focus in this sort of part of the year is implementing and rehearsing race nutrition sort of tactics as well. So this is for probably the visual learners. I know we, we talked about plans and prospective kind of planning, but this is a retrospective look at a, a yearly plan. So a macro cycle um, for Anoa Mura. She finished seventh in the 2012 uh, London Olympics. And so this is her year. And it kind of is a really nice example of some of those concepts and phases that, were, that have been mentioned so far. So what we're looking at here is just volume. Okay, So there's no intensity at this point. There's no measures of intensity on this figure. But like we talked about, or like Greg just talked about in that first base phase of training, might also be termed general specific um, preparation uh, you can see that in the, the first red box there. And again, what we're looking at is um, volume of swim at the very top line, so that's in kilometres, and then the bottom two lines are the volume of work done on the bike and, and running in hours. But in this first red box, you can kind of see a base, base training phase. Okay, and You can see multiple meso cycles, and I've kind of highlighted them because they, they build on each other, and that's kind of the, the idea in that early phase there. And as Greg mentioned, the, 
the focus here will be on building volume, not necessarily intensity at this point, uh, because they've probably come off a period of, of rest after their last competitive season. And I've highlighted the run load um, or the run volume with the little arrows there because that shows nicely how over multiple micro cycles, so both dots are that we're looking at are basically micro cycles, so week one, two, three, four. You can see that for the run, that keeps building through to five weeks. And then there's a little kind of rest or recovery week. And that's pretty typical of an endurance training um, meso cycle, like multiple building micro cycles and then a kind of a bit of a recovery or unloading week. But the idea would be that then when we start the next meso cycle, still a base training phase or a um, general or specific preparation phase, but now in the orange, we're starting that um, first microcycle at a higher load. So that builds again, again, at week 11, there's a bit of an unloading week and the same goes for week uh, you know, 12 through to 15. And you can kind of see that same pattern, although it's slightly variable in triathlons, a really tricky endurance sport to manage um, from a training load perspective because you have three separate disciplines all with unique challenges. But you can see the same general principles are applied there in the cycling and also the swim load as well. The next um, section, when we're looking from kind of week um, 16, I should have mentioned that first um, race that you see at the bottom there in the dark blue, that was the first race for the season, okay? And that wasn't necessarily a, um, an A race. It might have been a B or a C race, so less important. Um, but then now we're getting into this kind of pre-competition phase of training. You can see there's multiple races going on there. And as Greg mentioned, the volume stayed relatively high across this um, phase of training. And there'll be multiple mesocycles um, within here. But the volume stayed relatively high. And this might be where you know, some of those nutrition tactics start to be explored, um, leading towards week 39, which was the Olympics. Okay, and I've highlighted this last section, um, this kind of last mesocycle leading into the Olympics. And you can see that the, the volume of training, the hours done, um, or the, the kilometres done in the pool and the hours done on the bike and on the run, in the last few weeks start to drop off considerably. So indicating a taper, um, a taper effect there. So that's really, that's a nice demonstration of the, the competition phase leading into an Olympic, um, Olympic Games. Now, this is exactly the same um, training plan, the same 50 weeks. But now what we're looking at is distribution of work done within low, moderate and high intensity. Okay, so again, if these, these are the same blocks on the same um, periods of weeks here. So the first 16 weeks that we identified as, you know, a base training phase where there's multiple building mesocycles, you can see that in weeks one, two particularly, most of those uh, most of those microcycles are done in zone one, and the keys across to the right. And we'll talk about zones of training a little bit later. But here they're talking about zone one being less than the first lactate or ventilatory threshold. So pretty light light work um, done in that that period of training. And you can see that you know as we go through that first green mesocycle, the intensity start to build a little bit, and then we have a bit of an unload, and then we start again. But we can see that the intensity, um, sorry, I can't use my mouse at a week seven. Um, you can see that that starts, that next mesocycle starts with a little bit more intense work than what the previous one does. So the idea here is that we're building over time. We'll skip the kind of 
um, pre-competition phase and go to the, the right box, Greg. And you can see where I've added that arrow where we're leading into that final competition phase and the proportion of work done in zone one is reducing considerably across weeks. And again, if we go back to what Greg was talking about, you know, in that competition phase of training, the intensity of training is likely to then replicate or trying to replicate that of competition. So the fueling requirements sorry, will be much different as well. So for me, this is a really nice um, visual demonstration, retrospective data to demonstrate some of those concepts. And then kind of to sum it up um, and to show, you know, maybe a different sport as well, here we're looking at Olympic gold medalists um, across country skier, in fact, and obviously very high, some of the highest VO2 maxes out of any endurance athletes you'll see. Um, but the training distribution is very similar in terms of intensity. So the overall training volume, you know, 800, 900 hours uh, for the year, consisting of you know, seven to 800 hours of endurance training. But we can see uh, when we look at these percentages, the, the amount of low intensity work being done is nearly 85 to 90% of all that work done is done in very low intensities. Okay, so that's something to consider that even um, after your base training phase and in your pre-competition and competition phases, there's still a lot of work done in that zone one and or zone two, depending on the zone system that the, the coach and athletes are using. And that's for really good reason as well, because that's the, the training um, zone where you build a lot of mitochondria. And so you'll see a lot of endurance athletes doing a lot of work in that, that area. Okay, so to kind of skip through to, um, you know, what we're looking at at a weekly level, um, we thought we'd kind of recap on some of the, the general principles here. So at a weekly level, we're, we're going back to the kind of general fit principles that I'm sure everyone's or most will be familiar with here. So what we're looking at when you're looking at a weekly plan of an athlete, whether you're sitting down with the coach or with the athlete, are, are these, these principles. So the frequency of sessions, and here we're talking about well, how many sessions are planned per week, but also in endurance sports, particularly multi-modal endurance sports like triathlon, uh, how many sessions are planned per day? Okay, so the number of sessions per week, if that's increasing, having increased frequency of training, that will obviously have an impact on energy expenditure and potentially an increased um, complexity when you're trying to schedule meals around training if they need to be well-fueled. We've highlighted intensity because that's, that's probably an important one for us. And we'll touch on the concept of relative versus absolute intensities a little later as well. Because what's, what is 60% of peak power or VO2 for one athlete um, in terms of absolute watts will be very different or could be very different from what 60% for another athlete. So when we're looking at intensity, most often you'll be looking at relative intensity. So that might be percentage of peak power output for cyclists um, or percent VO2 max, percent velocity max in runners, um, which might be expressed as a pace or percent heart rate max very commonly used or even more subjectively a rating of perceived exertion. Now with intensity, that's obviously important because of the increased for, this, for a session of a given volume, a given or a set amount of time, the higher the intensity, the increased 
or the higher the rate of energy expenditure and also carbohydrate oxidation. From a nutritional perspective, that might decrease the tolerance the athlete might have to, um, to taking on food and fluid. And maybe in that pre-competition phase, that's where um, you might work on some of those, those training techniques, um, nutritional training techniques to enable the athlete to take on that food and fluid at, at relatively high intensities. As a quick aside, when we're looking at intensity, at very low intensities um, of training, we've got, we're likely to be using a lot of, of fat, okay? And this is a kind of a bit of a recap from some of the pre-learning, but at low intensities, lower percentages of um, power output of VO2, we're likely to have a higher fat uh, oxidation rate. And then at higher relative intensities, kind of threshold VT2 and above, we're looking at predominantly carbohydrate oxidation. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Increasing exercise intensity, we've got to not only increase energy expenditure, but an increase in carbohydrate oxidation. To finish up, um, we've got the type of training. Again, multi multimodal um, endurance sports that might be, that'll be different um, for each session. We've got like maybe a swim, bike, run, paddle, row, etc. And these all have their own kind of practical considerations of how you might feed an athlete if they need to be fed, given the, the duration of the session. Um, and also each of these different modes or types of training will likely use different muscle groups um, and proportions of muscle mass. So the more muscle mass that's being used, potentially the more energy expenditure that we'll have. And then the last consideration is the duration of the session. So um, this can be used as a measure of volume, as we've seen in the previous slides. Um, you know, a run might be scheduled for an hour run or two-hour two hour run. But also there's some um, considerations around that as well. Like if it's a short session, is feeding necessary? If it's a longer session, what are the implications to that? And there's an inverse relationship of session duration with exercise intensity. So the longer that you're asking an athlete to exercise, the lower the intensity that they'll be able to um, sustain throughout that time. In terms of training zones, um, this is something that you might see from an endurance training plan. This is a fairly generic um, five-zone model um, from a really well-renowned endurance training book. And typically in Australia, we'll see five, five intensity zones um, that may or may not be set based on lactate thresholds and ventilatory thresholds. Okay, so this one um, has your kind of arbitrary heart rate zones um, and there's also arbitrary kind of lactate zones and this is kind of in the period of time where you know you see between zone three and four that would be considered kind of the lactate threshold at four millimoles but obviously not everyone's don't believe now that everyone's lactate threshold is going to be at four millimoles okay so um, a, probably a more accurate way if we have capacity to do this is to utilize some lactate testing um, or indirect calorimetry, we can use uh, either of those to get either lactate or ventilatory thresholds. And typically we'll see VT1 or LT1, lactate threshold one between zones two and three, and then um, lactate threshold two or your VT2, respiratory compensation point between zones three and four. Now, this is from the pre-learning module and we've overlaid here at the top 
the zones one and two, which are again uh, below lactate threshold one, and where we see the majority, as we've, we've seen in previous slides, the majority of endurance athletes um, doing the majority of their work in that low intensity zone. Zone three, which would fall between the lactate um, thresholds, we see some work being done there, but not a whole lot. And there's a popularised um, method of polarised training where we'll see a lot of work done at the lower of zone one and two, some work done at zone four and five above lactate threshold two, and then a little bit done in the middle there. But when an athlete's racing um, or competing, a competitive athlete's racing, they're likely in that zone three to four area. I'm knocking on the door of that lactate threshold too. And that's a typical five-zone system that we might see. But I want to make you guys aware that you know, a lot of um, coaches and literature also report three-zone systems. So when you see zones reported on a training plan, it's really important to clarify how they're designed. So in a three-zone system, nice and simple, zone one below the first lactate threshold, zone two in the middle of the thresholds, and zone three above the second lactate threshold. I'll put a little uh, diagram at the bottom there too of a, of a trainer. And for those of us working with some amateur athletes, a really common way for them to assess threshold because they might not have access to um, other forms of equipment is via an FTP test. And there's some research that shows that the FTP can align pretty well with lactate threshold too. But be aware that the zones below uh, three might be more arbitrary, uh, arbitrarily um, uh, calculated as a percentage of that FTP. And there may not be a lactate threshold one or a VT1 that's, that's used there. So just to make you guys aware. In terms of substrate that's being used in zone uh, one and two, if we're using the five zone system, at the very low intensity, we're, we're predominantly using fat. And as we get closer to the lactate threshold one, that first rise in lactate, which is indicating an increase in glycolysis or supplementing um, the aerobic energy supply with glycolysis, we're using more and more carbohydrate. That zone three, the middle section, again, a higher reliance on carbohydrate until we get to that second lactate threshold where, you know, to sustain exercise in that, um, that uh, intensity, we're utilising primarily carbohydrate as a substrate. Just stepping back uh, a bit more um, broadly, and sometimes you might be dealing with athletes that uh, don't have the various nuances of training zones. They'll have an idea around their different sessions, and one way more qualitatively is to express the sessions by using um, terms that people can appreciate and relate to. So a performance or quality session um, perhaps is one of the key sessions of the week and an endurance athlete, you probably expect them to undertake two or to three, maybe four, you know, really performance-based sessions throughout the course of the week. And these types of sessions, the, the um, important work in these sessions would be done you know, in that sort of T4, T5. Non-specific endurance might be explained um, in a planning schedule as aerobic sessions. Sometimes they're, they're even written as a recovery session, um, which I, recovering from exercise while doing exercise um, is an interesting term in itself. And certainly for some athletes, they might interpret a recovery session 
as a non-fueling session. So it's important to make sure that you're clear about what that session means in terms of fueling. So non-specific endurance, there's probably more reflective of sessions that are done in that T1, T2 sort of endurance training zones. Strength sessions, which for an endurance athlete may be specific resistance training sessions done in the gym, or there are elements that are inherent to strength throughout you know, the various disciplines endurance athletes undertake. So having worked in triathlon for a long time um, and cycling you know, at a low cadence, for instance, on a slight uphill, while that might be considered cycling session, there's still inherent strength elements within that session. So it's not always about resistance training sessions for strength. And then also skill development, which is typically done at like a very high intensity or a very low intensity and typically for a short window of time as well. We'll just deviate now across to some physiology. So I'll hand back to Tom. Yeah, we've talked about um, the different um, plans and, and sessions within a week, but it's important to kind of revisit how we how we get energy to fuel those or how we get energy for those um, for those sessions. And I guess at rest, we've, we're at ATP homeostasis. So the supply um, matches the demand. There's no disruption there. Whereas when we start exercising, we have within the muscle all of these uh, things going on. We have obviously cross-group cycling. We've got muscle, muscle shortening, calcium recycling back to the sarcoplasmic reticulum and um, sodium potassium pumps. And all, all of these processes cost energy. They cost ATP or the, the currency of energy in the cell there is ATP. So we're using up that energy, that ATP. Um, so we're, we're creating a demand. And what we need to do is recycle that ADP back to ATP. And we do that via our three energy systems. So we've got in the middle one there, we've got our high energy phosphate transfer. So our ATP PC system, one of the, or the most rapid energy suppliers we'll see. Below that glycolysis, which is primarily carbohydrate, glycogen or glucose um, oxidation, a really quick rapid process to supply energy as well for these, pro, for these uh, processes. And at the top, oxidative phosphorylation or aerobic metabolism, which can utilise a mix of fats and carbohydrate depending on the um, rate at which that energy is demanded. So this one, uh, again, shows us the uh, really nicely the, the maximal rate of energy supply from the different energy systems. So if I'm looking at the, the sprinter on the right there, where uh, particularly the start, or maybe a five, 10 second effort or a throwing um, action where I want maximal power um, from my muscle, I'm demanding the maximum amount of ATP possible in as quick as possible time. Okay, so in that instance, I'm looking, if we jump to the figure on the left, I'm looking at using stored intramuscular ATP, the small amounts of ATP that are there ready to go, but also the, the fastest energy system to replenish that ATP, which is our ATP PC system. Okay, really simple energy system and therefore, because there's um, one step involved, it makes it really quick to recycle that ATP. Whereas if I'm looking at the cyclist on the bottom, maybe conducting an, an individual time trial there, the demand for energy is relatively lower. Okay, the rate, I should say, the demand um, on the rate of energy supply is lower. 
Okay, so in that instance, I can use an energy system, predominantly use an energy system that reflects that um, rate of demand. And that might be on the bottom right of your figure, might be fat oxidation, okay? Or it might be carbohydrate oxidation in the form of blood glucose oxidation or glycogen breakdown or glycogen oxidation. And I guess an important point there that Greg will expand on more is that you can see that the rate of ATP production from glycogen is higher than that or faster than that of blood glucose. It doesn't need to be transported. It's already in the cell. This, um, this next slide illustrates uh, an important point. And you know, if we go back to the sprinter on the right, we can supply a lot of energy really quickly with the ATPPC system or phosphocreatine system. But the problem is that it doesn't last for too long. Okay, now the figure on the left here shows um, contributions to total energy supply from each of the three um, main, or each of the three um, energy systems during maximal all-out exercise. Okay, so at maximal all-out exercise, you've probably only got around 20 seconds from your ATP PC system. Now, I want to make it clear that all energy systems are always contributing to energy um, supply. Okay, it's just which is the predominant energy system. And I guess the key point for me on this slide is that by the time we get to about a minute in exercise duration of all-out exercise, Aerobic energy is the predominant contributor, okay? So whether that's in a, a sprint or a, um, a track and field event or whether that's on the bike, even in all-out exercise, aerobic energy supply um, dominates by around a minute. And this is illustrated nicely in this particular figure where we're looking at, um, on the, the left-hand figure here, we're looking at energy contributions at well, four 200-metre runs, 400-metre runs, 800-metre runs, and a 1,500-metre run. And you can see that within a 400-metre run, so around you know, 43-ish seconds of the world record, it's about 50-50 contribution um, to energy supply. Okay, when we go to eight and 1500 meter runs, even though you consider that a short duration track and field event, aerobic energy supply is the dominant source of, of ATP. So if we bring this back to kind of more endurance sports and you know, energy contributions, this paper was really, uh, is really nice and demonstrates the importance of our aerobic um, contributions. So on the left figure here, what we're looking at on the, the y-axis is ATP turnover rate, so energy supply. And on the um, x-axis, we're looking at time. So on the left one, we're looking at the first 30-second exercise bout on a cycling ergometer, a 30-second bout. So kind of like a Wingate test you can think of. And you can see on the first occasion, you know, first thing that sticks out to me is that ATP turnover rate or supply is higher on our first occasion. And you can see in the white section of that first six seconds, most of that energy is supplied by the ATPPC system. As we go through, we can see that by the time we get to 15 to 30 seconds in that bout, around half the energy is supplied by oxidative phosphorylation aerobic system, um, maybe another quarter-ish provided by glycolysis and a quarter-ish provided by um, ATPPC. But then we had, uh, well then, 
the subjects in this uh, paper had a couple of uh, four-minute rests. So four-minute rest, another bout, 30 seconds, four-minute rest, another bout. So the figure on the right, we're looking at the third 30-second all-out bout. Okay, so we've only done that 90 seconds of exercise at this point, but you can see the contribution from oxidative phosphorylation is much, much higher in this third sprint. So the takeaway here is that when we're doing even endurance exercise, but we're having to put in, we athletes having to put in uh, multiple efforts, high intensity efforts, they become more and more aerobic as time goes on. And that could be really important in endurance sports. So if you're staying up late at the moment watching the Tour de France, you'll no doubt see in the coming days some breakaway efforts. And there's some evidence that shows that to create a breakaway, cyclists go through multiple high-intensity surges to kind of test the waters a little bit, see if they can get away. And they consist of 5 to 15-second um, bouts of cycling up to 1,000, probably much higher as well than 1,000 watts. Um, and as we've seen in that previous slide, if they keep doing that to kind of test the waters, we're, we're using a lot of aerobic energy supply. And given it's very high intensity, we know that that's likely going to be um, tapping into our carbohydrate stores. Once a breakaway has been maintained in a cycling event, there's evidence to show that there's, you know, from half a minute up to five minute durations of very high intensity work being done, 450 to 500 watts. So to sustain that energy, uh, or output, we need a really high energy expenditure. And we'll be relying really highly or really uh, a lot on the aerobic energy system. Okay, Tom, we'll change gears. Uh, we're about halfway through. Um, I just did note the time. We've only got about 10 minutes left. So uh, I'll see how quickly I can use my aerobic system to get through this uh, maybe a bit of glycolysis as well to get through the remainder of this presentation. But we'll go through determinants of substrate use. And uh, firstly, I'll just start with a figure that I'm sure that you're all familiar with. Um, and it sort of highlights the major substrate supplies within the body. Now, the values um, are reasonably approximate in nature. Uh, and when you certainly go fishing in the literature, um, it's really difficult to... Uh, ascertain exact numbers, particularly around whole body glycogen um, content. And carbohydrate stored in the muscle uh, is likely to vary somewhere between sort of four to 600 grams and is influenced by both training history uh, and recent training history and also the training status of the athlete. And they're slightly different terms, which I'll touch on a little later. Other important uh, storage of carbohydrate is obviously in the liver and probably sits around 80 to 100 grams. Uh, and only a very small amount of glucose uh, sits available in the blood, so roughly about four grams uh, to maintain your blood glucose in that sort of eight to four to eight millimoles sort of range. Adipose tissue, um, and obviously a major source of uh, triglycerides, which are both stored in adipose tissue, and along with that, that's stored in intramuscular triglycerides as well. Now, the substrates that you utilise or that you mobilise um, are influenced by a range of different factors, which we'll touch on uh, now. You're probably more familiar with this slide because it's one that um, gets shown quite routinely when you're looking at substrate use. 
Um, and what, what shows there is um, energy expenditure um, on the y-axis and different intensities of exercise, 25, 65 and 85%. This particular study was done with five endurance trained male cyclists. And for the 65 and 25% uh, VO2 max, they cycled uh, for about two hours. And for the 85%, they cycled for about 30 minutes. And the intensity 85 to 90% is about the type of intensity that a well-trained endurance athlete would be able to maintain for you know, around sort of 50 to 60 minutes. Now, the first point to note um, is that with the change of intensity, there's a change in the total net cost um, of energy. So you can see at that lower intensity of exercise at around 25%, um, it's quite low and then it increases by a factor of probably three to four mm. as the intensity of exercise increases. With the, um, the, check, the crossed bar um, and also the full bar, which is plasma glucose, so plasma-free fatty acids, so they're blood-borne fuels that are available in, in the plasma. The contribution of those uh, to total um, energy uh, remains relatively constant uh, over the different intensities of exercise. And as the exercise intensities increase, the contribution of stored fuels, particularly in the muscle, um, both as intramuscular triglycerides and glycogen increases. So there's an increase in the reliance. Um, and from that sort of median intensity activity, 65 up to 85%, you can see that that additional cost of exercise is mostly met by uh, increased reliance on stored carbohydrate within the muscle. So important for athletes that in, are engaged in uh, high-intensity endurance activities, sessions and or competition. So exercise intensity is important. And this next slide, I guess, provides uh, a further example of that. And in this particular study, they had 12 well-trained male athletes complete a marathon, a simulated marathon, um, and half the, um, of the males completed it at a quicker pace, so around 2 hours 45 minutes, uh, and the other half completed it at a much slower pace. And on the y-axis, it represents the total energy contribution of carbohydrate. And you can see that when they're running more quickly, uh, there's almost an exclusive reliance on carbohydrate as a fuel uh, throughout uh, the course of the marathon. And then the marathon finishes around that first sort of recovery window here. Whereas in the, um, when the athletes of the same calibre of athlete um, does the marathon, so same distance over a longer period of time, uh, they rely on a more on a mix of fuels, so the intensity that they're com that they're completing the activity is a lower intensity and allows them to re rely on a mix of fuels across both carbohydrate and fat. Interestingly, if you look at the nuances of this particular study, the total volume of carbohydrate that they they burn in the different trials. Um, despite being over different time courses, is very similar. So when they're running quicker, they're basically burning carbohydrate at a higher rate. So what are some of the other factors other than um, the intensity? Well, depending if you start exercise fed or fasted, that will influence 
uh, the fuels that you use. Over here is a respiratory exchange ratio, which Tom displayed earlier. A figure of one um, is predominantly reliant or solely reliant on carbohydrate. A figure of 0.7 is uh, burning fat only as a fuel. And in this particular um, study, they were fed a, a, a pre-exercise meal four hours before the start of exercise. Um, and they either, fed, they either fed that or they started the exercise that fasted after 10 hours of fasting. And what you can see here is that when, you, when the athlete presents in a fed state, even though it's the same intensity of exercise, that will influence the mix of fuel. So there's a heavier reliance on carbohydrate. So if you've got a session that athletes um, need to burn carbohydrate in that session, well, then providing a pre-exercise meal will enhance their ability to use carbohydrate for that session. The other elements that will influence um, the use of fuels or that mix of fuels is the muscle glycogen content, habitual dietary intake, and also the duration of the exercise session. Um, it will also be influenced by what they're fed during the session as well. So this particular slide demonstrates both the effect of uh, the duration, the muscle glycogen content, as well as um, you know, whether they're fed carbohydrate or a, a matched flavoured placebo. So in the, um, in the carbohydrate trial you can see here, uh, there's when they're consuming carbohydrate regularly, throughout the session and in this particular trial they, they had their first bolus of carbohydrate at 20 minutes and then they continued uh, regularly consuming carbohydrate throughout the remainder of the exercise session. And you can see that carbohydrate oxidation rates are maintained much higher, particularly after that sort of hour to hour and a half when the carbohydrate that's consumed becomes more available to the individual. When they're not consuming carbohydrates, so the flavoured matched placebo, you can see that the rates of oxidation of carbohydrate as muscle glycogen stores start to empty, uh, slowly decrease. There's a heavier reliance on fat as a fuel um, when they're doing the trial without uh, carbohydrate. This next slide um, demonstrates one of the important elements that I often think about when I'm managing athletes. And this was a, uh, a systematic review um, where they looked at um, all the studies that have picked up on muscle glycogen contents um, under different feeding re regimens. And so in the darker bar, um, athletes are in a glycogen depleted state or they've followed a low glycogen uh, or a low carbohydrate diet. In the, um, the medium shade blue, um, they've followed a, a dietary intake of somewhere between two to seven grams of carbohydrate per kilogram per day. And then in the lighter blue, the athletes have been exposed to a higher carbohydrate intake. So at least six grams of carbohydrate per kilogram uh, for three days or more than seven grams of carbohydrate per kilogram uh, for two days. And what they did is that they, um, they grouped athletes depending on the calibre of the athlete. So on the left-hand side, you've got lower calibre athletes, and on the right-hand side, higher calibre athletes, and they categorised them uh, in relationship to their VO2 max. And what you can see, um, and this is their total muscle glycogen content, 
And I guess the point to note in this particular slide is that um, with those athletes that are more trained, when you change their dietary intake from a moderate intake, uh, somewhere between two to seven, to more than seven, you get an increase in muscle glycogen content. If you're dealing with less trained athletes though, um, even though you provide more carbohydrate, there's no real difference uh, in their muscle glycogen content in response to a much higher intake of carbohydrate. And that reflects some of the adaptations that the athlete um, encounters in response to uh, long-term adaptations to endurance training. So if you look at an elite athlete versus the average punter, they're both doing the same um, event. They're really different engines that you, you're dealing with. And so while they'll both um, respond and uh, they'll both have adaptations in response to endurance training, the elite athlete, because they've done more work, will have an enhanced response. So Tom mentioned this before, uh, there'll be increase in mitochondrial um, concentration, um, so mitochondrial biogenesis, there'll be increase in mitochondrial function as well. Capillarization to the muscle will increase, endurance, the better trained endurance athlete will have an increased capacity to uh, store glycogen, uh, also transport carbohydrate into the muscle and also use fat as a fuel, um, particularly fat as a fuel um, at sub-maximal intensities. And you've probably come across that commonly. Um, people will often refer to that, you know, they become um, somewhat, they preserve their, their glycogen at sub-maximal intensities. And, and, and that's correct. And certainly um, the research would suggest that. One of the things that's often mixed, missed, though, is that the, the better trained athlete that's been training at a higher intensity for longer periods of time, they also have an increased capacity to burn carbohydrate as a fuel as well. And the other obvious difference between these two types of athletes is different body composition and potentially a difference um, in lean body mass, particularly if the athlete is corrected for weight. Cool, thanks, Greg. Um, we'll move on to talking about some important concepts around relative and absolute um, exercise intensity and implications that that has, and kind of to demonstrate um, some differences between the average punter that we saw and the elite athlete, we thought we'd run through a few examples. And I guess if you're working with an athlete that has a power meter and they're becoming more and more common for recreational or amateur athletes, you somewhat hit the jackpot in terms of estimating energy expenditure. So we're going to use um, a surface cycling example. So we've got the recreational rider on the left and the, the elite on the right. And to make things simple, I've you know, said that they've got the same body mass and the same gross efficiency. And kind of to explain gross efficiency um, or to recap on gross efficiency, that's the efficiency in which an athlete has during this cycle, during a cycling bout in converting their um, food energy, chemical energy, into um, mechanical work being done. Okay, so if I'm 100% efficient, all of my energy would go to the pedals. But that's not the case. We're about 20% efficient um, on average. So more elite competitors might be uh, a higher efficiency, 21, 22, 23. And we've seen um, more recreational cyclists in that kind of 17, 18, 19% range. But just for simplicity, we've called them both 20%. And this first scenario was when is if 
our recreational average punter and our elite athlete went for a ride together. So they've gone on a two-hour bunch ride together at a pace of 30k an hour. So they're riding at the same intensity. The intensity there is set. And that's an absolute intensity that's been set. So around 175 watts might be required in order to pedal at 30 kilometers an hour in a bunch. Okay. So we can then um, take that information that we get from the power meter, because that's a uh, mechanical work rate. Okay. So an important concept is that a watt, 175 watts, is equivalent to 175 joules every second. Uh, that's the amount of work that's being done. If we multiply that out, and you'll see that this, it's the same for rider one and two, and that's the point that we're trying to make here, because the speed is set, the absolute intensity is the same, they're probably likely going to have very similar energy expenditures. So 175 joules per second, multiply that out by your two hours, uh, in seconds gives us a, a work done of 1,260 kilojoules. But we know that we're only around 20% efficient. So that will calculate out, so 1,260 kilojoules by 20% efficiency works out to a metabolic work being done of around 6,300 kilojoules. And that's the same for both athletes because they're riding together at the same work rate. The next example here is if we said, okay, let's have your average punter and your elite athlete go for a ride uh, on separate days or go for your own rides. You're going to ride for three hours at a relative work rate of 65% of your peak power. Okay. So in this instance, we've got a, a work rate or an intensity that's set as a relative intensity. But the absolute work rate that they'll be able to do in terms of watts will be determined by their peak capacity. So if we have a look at the second from the bottom box there, we've got our recreational rider with a peak power output of 330 watts. So 65% of that will be 215 watts for them. That's what they'll sustain on the bike at 65%. In contrast, our more elite rider who is better trained has a higher capacity of 420 watts. So 65% of that peak power will be equivalent to 270, say, watts. Okay. If we go to the calculations on the right now, we can see that for rider one, our recreational rider, if we multiply out their 215 watts or joules per second by the same duration of three hours, we're getting a work, uh, a mechanical work that's been done of 2,322 kilojoules. And again, assuming the same efficiency, 20%, that'll work out to an energy expenditure of around 11,600 kilojoules. Now, our second rider, our more elite rider, was able to do more work on the bike for the same relative intensity. Okay, So even though the relative intensity is the same, the absolute intensity that he's working at is different. So he's done around 3,000 kilojoules of work on the bike, assuming the same metabolic efficiency uh, or gross efficiency. He's used around 14,700 kilojoules. So that we can we can see from this example that you know, even though it's the same amount of time and the same relative intensity, the more trained athlete has used around 3,000 kilojoules more, which is the example of the, the, the point that we're trying to make here. The last scenario would be uh, if your athletes were going to undertake a set distance 
okay? And this might be in the form of a race. So this is some published um, data from an Ironman triathlon, and you've got an elite competitor at the top, um, and you've got a top amateur age grouper in the blue, second lot of um, data there, second row of data, and then you've got a lower level amateur right, uh, competitor at the bottom who completed around 13 hours compared to eight hours for the elite. Now, to, um, you know, to frame this, there's also some assumptions here, okay? So even though this is a published paper and we've got some published energy expenditures, I want to kind of make the point that there's still some assumptions here. So swimming economy, how many kilocalories it costs per kilometre of swim was estimated um, from five elite swimmers in published work and it was applied to everyone. So you'll see the energy expenditure for swimming is the same for everyone. Okay, the running economy, how many kilocalories it costs per kilometre was estimated from similar populations in public work. So similar elite people and similar low level, uh, sorry, sorry, similar top level amateur um, runners. So although this is published work, there's still some assumptions. And what I'm getting at is that you can still make some of these calculations and to estimate energy expenditure yourself. Thanks, Tom. And I guess the first thing to pick up on, and Tom's mentioned this, is that the athletes are doing the same race, but they obviously take a different um, time to do that. So the, the winner, uh, this particular race, this Hawaiian Ironman, uh, just did around eight hours. The top amateur, who was actually one of the um, uh, authors of the paper, was around nine hours, whereas the lower amateur. And they're able to do that because they're working at different um, absolute intensities. So they're swimming faster, they're cycling, power output's higher, and they're obviously running at a quicker pace as well. The first point to note, I guess, in this type of activity um, is that they've all burnt a reasonably similar amount of energy. So up, upwards of about sort of nine to 10,000 calories. So, you know, in and around sort of 40,000 kilojoules. I guess the point to note is, is that the elite athletes managed to do that in eight hours. So, you know, from a, a nutrition perspective, like when you're fueling an, an elite athlete, you need to be more aggressive with your strategies uh, in and around training. And this, while this is a competition um, scenario, it does apply to training sessions. Whereas for a lower amateur athlete, uh, endurance space, you need to be um, a little less aggressive. And I guess one of the things that I've often chased in the literature to understand, well, how aggressive do I have to be is published work around, you know, carbohydrate oxidation rates. And these are whole body estimated carbohydrate oxidation rates for the elite top amateur and also lower amateur athlete. And so just to put that in context, the elite athlete throughout the course of that race is burning sort of around three and a half grams of carbohydrate per minute. And how does that look against sort of other published data? Um, well, this next slide is a uh, culmination of different studies. And what I've tried to do is look at different intensities of exercise. And I've grouped them both in fed and also in unfed state. So either either fed carbohydrate or they consumed water. And that first um, study at the top 
um, that involved uh, maximum amount of work in well-trained endurance males over about 60 minutes. So it was the amount of um, intensity that they could maintain for a 60-minute block of, of work. And their carbohydrate oxidation rates per minute uh, for that, in that particular study, regardless if they consume carbohydrate or water, was up around sort of four and a half grams of carbohydrate per minute. So at very high intensities, when the body needs to produce energy quickly, irrespective of whether or not the athlete's fed or not, as long as there's available carbohydrate in the body, the body will access that carbohydrate. When you start to work at lower intensities of activity for endurance athletes, what you'll notice in those other grouped data sets is that when the athlete's consuming carbohydrate um, in the darker shades of both blue, green and orange, they'll be, they'll be oxidising higher rates of, um, of carbohydrate. And obviously they'll be consuming, they'll be oxidising less at those lower intensities uh, than they are when they're exercising at that higher intensity of exercise. So in the blue um, uh, bars or lines, you've got the dark blue that's, um, with carbohydrate trial, the light blue is in the, wa the water trial. The dark blue, um, you can see that they're well, this is again, um, well-trained males. They're burning uh, around that sort of three, three and a half grams of carbohydrate per minute. Um, and you can see at lower intensities, both at 64 and 50%, the, in the amount of carbohydrate that they're burning is a little lower, so around that sort of one and a half to two and a half grams. So how would I ever relate to that to an athlete that I work with? Well, if you have an athlete that undertakes a, a graded exercise test, so they might undertake a, um, a VO2 max test, like a step test, for instance, this is some data from an individual female, um, and they've stepped through a range of different exercise um, uh, intensities. This is on a, on a treadmill. They probably would have started at uh, 10 kilometres per hour. And using um, uh, like indirect calorimetry, so gas analysis, you're able to go and have a, uh, or you're able to calculate both carbohydrate and oxidation rate, or fat oxidation rates for that athlete over those different steps of the graded exercise test. So if I know the session, if I know roughly what the athlete's burning per minute, I can sort of make a guesstimate if I know the nuances of a particular exercise session. So the example here that I've provided is, you know, this female, she may do a 15-minute um, or a, a tempo sort of run where she's building um, her speed over 15 minutes and working in and around sort of 15 to 16 kilometres per hour, well, I know um, that, you know, her carbohydrate oxidation rates for that particular session would be in and around sort of three grams of carbohydrate per minute. Given that she's done 45 minutes of work, you know, her total carbohydrate use for that session might be upwards of sort of, you know, 150 to 160 grams of carbohydrate. So how aggressively I refuel, sort of knowing that's, um, that information, um, allows to be, me to be a little bit more specific with how I refuel the athlete. In terms of estimating energy expenditure, I think Greg's example there is probably the best use of um, the best use of um, 
technology, if you have it available, being able to do that indirect calorimetry, there's more, it's, there's more, um, there's other ways of doing it, like doubly labelled water, which will capture everything, not necessarily just activity or exercise related energy expenditure. That's not really practical um, for people that, that we're working with. So indirect calorimetry is, you know, somewhat accessible, I guess, um, but may come with a cost that not all athletes will be willing to uh, or, or be able to access. So at the next best level would be, for me, would be for to look at ergometry. So like the example we looked at um, with the cyclists, so if you can have a, an understanding of the amount of work that's being done, if there's a power meter available, we can guesstimate gross efficiency at around 20% to get a really nice understanding, in my opinion, of um, exercise energy expenditure. But then there's also, you know, as we go down this list there from indirect calorimetry, um, I've slotted in ergometry there, but heart rate monitoring, accelerometry, we're getting more indirect measures, more subjective measures of training load and kind of estimates of energy expenditure. And I did want to quickly mention that on that Ironman slide that Greg finished presenting, we provided a link there too. So if you can you can use that link to access the paper, but they've also got a supplementary Excel sheet um, where you can utilise and plug in different gross efficiency values and durations and work out some energy expenditures and rates of energy expenditures. So if I'm working with an athlete that's running, maybe, maybe that's your next best um, you know, way to do that if you can find some estimated um, economy values that would be called in running, so how many kilocalories it costs per kilometre in a similarly trained population, you might be able to use that spreadsheet to kind of estimate energy expenditure. Heart rate monitoring is popular, but a lot of these methods below heart rate monitoring and including heart rate monitoring are more for, you know, from a physiology and a coach perspective to ensure appropriate overload and ensure that we're working in the right training zone, but it becomes really difficult to estimate energy expenditure from those. And in terms of heart rate monitoring, your best bet there would be to do that in combination with calorimetry to get an understanding of what heart rates correspond to what VO2s, um, because they can more accurately work out the energy expenditure associated. But the less information that we're given or have access to the more variability now guesstimates of energy expenditure. If you're working with amateur, even with amateur athletes, it's probably likely they'll have some type of athlete management system. This one um, is a very common, common one used, and you can get an understanding of what they've done and also what they've planned. So if you look into a session, so a cycling session, for example, it might look something like this. So you get information about the duration, the distance, the average speed likely from a GPS system that they're using. Um, and if they've got a power meter like they have here, you can see uh, the average power at the bottom. You can see that it's worked out for us how much work that they've done on the bike because they've got this power meter. And then about halfway down the list of um, variables, you see calories. So this particular um, system estimates calories burnt based on work done. But I guess you need to know the system, the athlete management system that you're working with, because this one essentially just converts the work done in kilojoules to a calories value. And essentially that assumes an efficiency of around 24%, which is pretty high for your average punter. Okay, so the energy expenditure is probably a little bit higher. For the average punter we've like said before, we've probably seen 
growth efficiency is around, you know, 17, 18, 19%. Okay, so that means that using more energy to get that amount of work being done. But uh, in other disciplines, it's less easy to, um, to quantify the training load that's being done. And this is some um, um, volume variables or training variables that are commonly quantified in national and even international level swimmers. Okay, so how many kilometres they've done, how many kilometres within different intensity bands that they might have predefined, um, et cetera, et cetera. So in these instances, you've got a little bit less information to work with. Now we're getting the wind up, uh, Tom. Um, I'm not sure if that's because of you or me, um, but Al said that we've got to wrap it up. So I'm just mindful of that. So what I'll do is uh, I'll just go really quickly through that, through these next couple of slides. But I guess the one point I wanted to make from this slide, and this is a classic paper. Um, if you haven't read it, I'd certainly encourage you to do so. Um, it dates back to the um, 1988 and was done, uh, well, certainly led by Dave Costell, uh, who's one of the forefathers of um, sports nutrition research. And the point to note in this particular um, study is that the coaches' observations um, provided real insight into whether or not the athletes were managing uh, an increase uh, intensified training block. So in the study, they doubled weekly tra training volume uh, over 10 days, and the coaches were able to um, identify the athletes that manage that change in intensity uh, versus the ones that didn't. And interestingly, when they looked at those two groups, which the coaches had identified, the group that didn't manage the increased intensity had a lower carbohydrate intake. And this study was one of the pivotal studies that drove the, the uh, messaging around um, higher carbohydrate intakes for higher exercise loads. And so the information that you get back from a coach um, and also from an athlete, uh, equally important uh, in terms of determining how much fuel uh, that an athlete might need. And both of these resources, uh, they're available uh, on the AIS uh, website, but I, I refer to these as um, body awareness cues. So is the athlete um, responding to training? Are they able to cope with those higher intensity sessions? Are they doing the work that you would expect them to be able to do in a quality session? Are they able to repeat sessions of higher quality through different days? So those subjective um, assessments of, from both the athlete and coach should never be um, uh, excused and provide real insight into you know, your fueling strategy that you might take on board for an athlete in a particular session. This uh, slide I've been told I won't go into, um, but it's another way of estimating energy expenditure in a particular session. It's not unlikely as a dietitian that you wouldn't have come across this um, uh, assessment method, but it's referred to as um, metabolic equivalence of task. And it's a means of um, estimating the energy cost of particular exercise sessions. And for athletes, for individuals that are within normal body weights, it's likely a, a reasonable reflection of the um, energy expenditure within different types of exercise, both the type and also the intensities of different exercise. There's a website there 
Um, but, and by using that equation, you can easily um, calculate the energy cost of different exercise sessions. It, it, it is an estimate, but if, you, if you've got no understanding of what the likely energy cost of a session is uh, that, you know, for an athlete that, that you're dealing with is doing, it's certainly a good place to start. So what I'll do is I'll just finish off um, in terms of an athlete simulation. If this is the, um, the training uh, for the week, this particular training block I sort of pulled out of uh, an athlete, a female endurance athlete, um, was the pre-competition or leading into the competition, sort of heavy competition phase. Um, they're actually returning uh, from an injury. Uh, and there was a real focus uh, on both um, their swim uh, development along with also trying to maximise their response to running as well. If I plan out or have an understanding of the week, I can certainly uh, pinpoint the, you know, the key elements of the week. And you can see that Tuesday is a real um, important uh, day where the athlete has a quality swim session in the morning and a hard run session in the afternoon. And in terms of risk profile, that afternoon hard run off the off the off a morning that's a high quality um, session becomes a risky session for bone stress. If I was to estimate energy expenditure over the course of the week, um, you know it might look a little like this. So I guess the point to take away is that you know there's a change in energy expenditure over the different days, and you can see that Tuesday. Uh, is higher energy expenditure. What you want to do is plan uh, their food and fluid intake so that you align their energy intake alongside their um, likely energy expenditure. But I guess on that Tuesday, it is a risk. And, you know, they've got a double session. They're both quality sessions. If they're not well planned, uh, you know, they, they might uh, potentially underfuel on that particular day. So how might I calculate um, if I wanted to look at their energy expenditure from the morning session, so the morning swim quality session by using METS, um, it's around 600 calories. The afternoon session being a run session uh, will be a higher associated energy cost um, because it's weight bearing, you know, it's in around 1100 calories for that afternoon session. Sitting down with the athlete, and if I look at the morning period only, you know, the athlete tells me that the adjustment that they've made to absorb the swim session is they add a slice of toast um, before the session, and then they consume a half-strength sports drink during the session. So the total additional calories on top of what they would regularly consume in, their, in, in a day where they've rested uh, is about 205 calories. So a real underfueling, um, both in terms of replacing energy cost of the morning swim session, but certainly uh, to offset the additional energy cost of the afternoon session that's coming up, the run session. If I was planning that with the athlete, um, well, then what I might plan to do is I keep the pre-training snack, knowing that that's a quality session and you want some carbohydrate in uh, before that session, I would change the um, the concentration of the drink, which allows an increase in calories, be more um, uh, specific with the post-exercise um, replenishment for the athlete, 
add to existing meals, both uh, mid-morning and also at lunch to further bolster the energy um, intake for that athlete. So, you know, I've offset their, their typical energy intake by a further sort of 1,000 calories, which still falls short uh, for the afternoon run, given that the combined swim run cost was about 1,600 calories, but certainly um, allows you to front end some of the calories leading into the run as opposed to replacing those calories um, later in the day. So just as an example, um, that might take a number of sessions to slowly move the athlete towards being more aggressive with their fueling strategies. And that example is from a like a high, higher end or higher quality endurance athlete. So to sum up, I guess what we've tried to point out in this particular session is when you're dealing with endurance athletes, make sure that you become familiar with the, the, the training plan. So more holistically, so over the course of a longer window of time, um, engage the coach but, and also engage the physiologist to ensure that you understand the training plan. Consider the athlete and the engine that you're working with. And I'll say this again, but when you've got a well-trained endurance athlete, um, what they get better at is they get better at burning fuel. So they burn fuel at much higher rates. Both their training status and training history, be familiar with that because that will influence uh, their capacity to burn fuel. Attempt, attempt to understand fueling and likely energy requirements, and we've given you a range of ideas there. And, you know, I've been in this space for a long time and I'm still exploring ways in which I can better understand the energy costs and also the carbohydrate use of endurance athletes engaged in daily training. And I guess as a dietitian, where you become particularly important to the athlete is negotiating practical and considered nutrition strategies that are aligned to daily exercise volume. So that wraps it up. We've gone well over time and I can see that there's some participants um, have hung in there, which is great. So if there's any questions, I guess we've got time for a couple of short questions. Awesome. Thank you, Greg. Uh, if anyone has a question, you can feel free to type it into the chat. While they're doing that, I was just going to ask a quick question to, to you, Greg. Most people will be familiar with the, the table in the various textbooks or they've done it in courses over the years around carbohydrate requirements on a daily basis. There's, I think there's about four categories depending on the volume of training from you know, three to five grams per kilo per day up to sort of 10 plus. Given you know, what you guys have talked about in terms of absolute versus relative intensity, you know, you're going to have an elite athlete that their one to two hours a day of exercise or training at a moderate intensity is going to burn a lot more energy and a lot more carbohydrate than a recreational athlete. Where do you feel that that table is kind of pitched at? Do you feel that it's more pitched at the elite athletes and their fueling needs or more the recreational athletes and their fueling needs? And are we risking over or under fueling one group of athletes if we take that too literally? That's a great question, Al. Um, I think it's probably more pitched to a well-trained endurance athletes um, and probably even skewed towards the male um, athletes versus the female. And so um, although in saying that, when they're well-trained, male or female, um, getting into those higher ranges, so 6 to 10 grams per kilo, um, allows an athlete to, you know, meet their daily energy requ requ requirements. Um, so, and, you know, their daily energy requirements, maybe not something that regularly talked about, but for someone that's sort of undertaking sort of 15 to 20 hours of training per week, 
you know, you'd be looking at, you know, 250, maybe more kilojoules per kilogram body mass to meet those requirements. And for, for males, probably even up towards 300 kilojoules per kilogram body mass per day. So there's probably, with those guidelines, I think they're reasonably appropriate for well-trained male and female endurance athletes, uh, where you might, if you interpret them inappropriately, you might overfuel someone that's lesser trained. Um, so that more recreational athlete. And that's where some of the subtleties of understanding energy cost of exercise and also likely carbohydrate use become important. Yep, right. And I don't think you guys explained that really well, so that's great. Thanks. Um, Charles said in the chat a question, is the total daily carbohydrate intake more important than the timing? Charles, again, you know, great question. Um, I don't know that one's more important than the other. Certainly, if you've got repeat days um, of training, well, then total volume of carbohydrate is important. If you've got two sessions that are close together uh, on the one day, well, then timing your carbohydrate appropriately between the two sessions is important in terms of refueling capacity. But if you've got an extended window, so 24 hours or longer, to refuel for the next session, well, then total volume of carbohydrate will override um, any influence of the timing of the carbohydrate in, in terms of muscle glycogen repletion. So it really depends on the window of opportunity that you've got for recovery. Thank you. Uh, if anyone else has any other questions, feel free to type them into the chat. Uh, I had another question for probably Tom, maybe Greg as well. You had the um, the example, that screenshot there from Training Peaks, and you had the, the TSS for the session, the training stress score, which gives you a rough sort of quantification of kind of volume and intensity combined, I suppose. How much or how useful do you find that is from, you know, if you look at an athlete and their TSS in different sessions across the week to work out these are the sessions that need to be more highly fueled or these are the sessions that don't need to be highly fueled or do you think it's too blunt because it kind of doesn't capture enough information or it tries to simplify things too much? Yeah, I think it depends on the information that you put into training peaks as well. Um, if you have a power meter, that becomes maybe more accurate um, down to whether you've just been able to put in distance and a time, it's becoming less accurate. Um, and for me, I think it's more about comparing sessions, like you said at the start, like are there key sessions that they're typically doing that have this high score, overall training load score, and there's, you know, Training Peaks has them, all these different um, AMS systems have different metrics that are calculated in different ways. So for me, I think it's more around, like you said, just seeing which, which typical sessions flag, you know, high scores. Um, that's about to the extent that I would, I would use it. Anything you want to add to that, Greg? Um, I think, I guess it gets down to the time as well that you've got available to interrogate the, the, the data. And I guess training stress scores, I've found that they're often, you know, as a team of people around an athlete, you often reflect on them once they you know, the sessions have been executed. Um, and so sometimes it's nice to go back and interrogate a situation where like an a, that preclinical phase before an, like where an injury might sort of start to, to go back and look at those sort of numbers. But I've, like, I guess I've not, 
I've been familiar with them, I guess, over the years, but probably, you know, that forward planning, knowing when the stress points are. And the stress points for me with an endurance athlete, about it's about the quality of the session and the time on the tools as well. Because if they've got it under a heavy training load on a particular day, they've obviously often got to be really well planned on that day to make sure that their fueling strategies are executed in time to facilitate appropriate nutrition on that day. So if they're on their tools and they're busy, to me that's a stress point, particularly around those quality sort of sessions. So the pre-planning, knowing that you know what the schedule likely to be for the coming week is probably more important than, than TSS. Well, that's certainly what I've found anyway. Look at what's coming rather than what's been. Yeah. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thank you, guys. I don't think there's any other questions in the chat, so uh, I think we'll finish up there. Thanks, everyone, so much for being involved in the webinar. We hope you've gained some useful insights to assist your practice as a sports dietitian. As Greg mentioned, we've got the SDA Masterclass in Insurance Sports Nutrition coming up in November um, where we'll be able to take some of these concepts um, and particularly some of the practical implementation and uh, and go you know much deeper have a big deeper dive into some of those concepts as well uh, just a reminder to log your cdp points for today 10 points for the webinar and also that our next webinar as i mentioned at the start is around strength and power sports and that's on tuesday the 2nd of august at 12 30 as well so a big thank you to greg and tom for your time and presenting the webinar and um yeah thanks everyone for attending and we'll see you at the next one in about a month's time